You're listening to the UI podcast by the Swedish Institute of International Affairs. There are a lots of perceptions about China. There are lots of perceptions about what China is doing. There are lots of perceptions about what China is doing in the Middle East. Uh, and I think part of what we are trying to get at in today's discussion, of course, is those who actually study China, uh, what can they tell us about the Chinese role, the actual Chinese role, the difference between perception and reality? Obviously, perception is a reality of its own, in a sense, but nonetheless, it's important to kind of have a reality check, if you will. Uh, because sometimes the ideas we get about China or some other countries are are more perhaps the running wild of imagination than reality. So in order to do this, we have three guests. We have Professor Bingbing Wu from Beijing University, who has several decades of experience in research on the Middle East and the Arabic world in, in general and uh, especially. Um, among his publications... One of the later ones is China's Strategy in the Middle East, a Preliminary Reflection. He's also written a book on the rise of modern Shia Islam, or Islamism, rather, to be correct. Um, in the middle, we have Dr. Jonna Neumann, who is a lecturer in international politics at the Department of Politics at Sheffield University. She is also an associate with uh, UI, uh, working on China and China and security and its relationship to the United States. One of her books is Securing China, Understanding Security Politics Beyond the West, which is part of a project. And then to my extreme left is Dr. Bijan Khajapur, who is a strategic consultant uh, with UNIPA in Vienna, who has 25 years of experience in all matters of management, strategy, and energy uh, in the Middle East. You will find a number of his articles at Al Monitor, one of the excellent news outlets for analysis of countries in the Middle East. The three of them will look at this complex, both from the kind of the Chinese angle, if you will, but also then from the Middle Eastern angle. We will start off with the wide lens, which will be provided by Yona, and then followed up by Bing Bing to see the specific Chinese focus. And then we will turn it the other way around and see what, if not people, then at least political elites and businesses think in the Middle East. Please. Uh, so as you've just been told, I work primarily on Chinese foreign and uh, foreign security and energy policy, really. So I'm going to focus on the China side of the equation. Uh, but first, a little bit of... Uh, in terms of the bigger picture. So the Persian Gulf obviously plays a crucial role in global power struggles, uh, both in terms of being a strategic location, providing access to ports for, most of the for much of the Central Asian landmass, uh, but also in terms of its uh, energy resources. It's a particularly dynamic region, which is also uh, very much affected by the recent decline in oil prices. It's got a history, as everyone knows, of US and European colonialism, but it's of course also subject to the ongoing influence of Western powers. So the region needs to diversify its foreign economic relationships, but also at the same time to restructure its economies away from oil. Enter China. China doesn't have this baggage that Western states have in the Middle East. It's seen as quite a neutral, honest power broker. It needs energy resources, and it also needs space for broader economic expansion. Thinking here particularly about export markets, but also exporting domestic overcapacity, uh, particularly in heavy industries. 
And as a result, over the past 10 years, we see a huge shift in China's role in the Middle East. China is the world's biggest energy consumer with a growing supply demand gap. It's now around 70% dependent on imports of oil, half of which comes from the Persian Gulf. Uh, some estimates actually indicate this is moving towards 70% uh, uh, dependence on the broader Middle East. Chinese reliance on oil from the Persian Gulf specifically is also expected to continue to grow according to the International Energy Agency. And at the same time, the United States, itself now a big energy producer, of course, uh, becomes less dependent on the Middle East. China is also building broader economic relations with the region. Uh, China is now the biggest trade partner and investor for many countries in the Persian Gulf. Uh, in the last decade alone, China's trade volume with the Middle East has increased tenfold. Its investments and its contracts in the Middle East have doubled, and uh, a third of that, around a third of that, is energy related. That's according to the AEI's latest figures. So Chinese money is now everywhere in the Middle East, uh, in the form of loans, aid, investment, construction projects, etc. And the Persian Gulf plays a particularly important role here uh, in terms of China's global development program that some of you may have heard about, uh, some of you may have heard a lot about, the Belt and Road Initiative. So the Persian Gulf intersects two main Belt and Road routes. This is China's global development program. So the Persian Gulf here really presents a huge economic opportunity, um, both for China, but the BRI also presents a huge economic opportunity for Persian Gulf states. In fact, China and national governments in the region have actually matched the Belt and Road Initiative with national development plans. We see this uh, synergy between uh, BRI and the Saudi Vision 2030, but also the UAE Vision 2021. So there are clear synergies and shared interests between China and a lot of Persian Gulf countries. Uh, as also seen in China's 2016 uh, Arab policy paper and its 2015 vision and actions on jointly developing the Belt and Road. So we have really what looks like a win-win arrangement. But China's growing economic interest and influence has not been matched by involvement in regional politics. China tries to stay neutral uh, and emphasize non-interference, uh, and overall the US security architecture remains dominant in the region. China has comprehensive strategic partnerships, its highest level of diplomatic uh, relationship with both Saudi Arabia and Iran since 2016. So it maintains very strong relationships with both of these two key rivals in the region. And it sees itself overall as promoting peace and stability through development, rather than democratic peace. So we see very much a Beijing model as opposed to the Washington consensus being promoted here. China, according to its foreign ministry, wants good relations with all countries in the Middle East. So we see this continued Chinese policy of neutrality and non-interference. All of which leaves us with a few key questions or things to watch for. So I'm going to focus on three things here. Question number one, uh, can China stay neutral and if so, for how long? It's balancing a very delicate tightrope, maintaining strong relations with Saudi Arabia and Iran at the same time, but also Israel. At the same time, growing economic involvement is gonna make it harder for Beijing to stay out of Middle Eastern politics. Not taking a position is also a position. China also needs to protect its economic interests. At the same time, we see a China that's increasingly confident abroad. It's got growing influence across Asia with the Belt and Road Initiative. And we also see growing Chinese military confidence. Uh, particularly in the 2019 Defense White Paper, uh, but also in its participation in anti-piracy operations in the Gulf of Aden, for instance. So what will happen to Chinese neutrality is a key thing to watch, I think. Question number two, how will China respond to, or perhaps even balance, recent US actions in the Middle East? China immediately strongly condemned the recent US attack on Iran, uh, the assassination of Soleimani. 
So how will China deal with these renewed tensions between the US and Iran? Instability in the Middle East threatens Chinese energy security and economic growth. At the same time, US-China relations have not been great in recent years. That said, the phase one deal agreed in the trade war last week commits China to buying around $50 billion worth of US energy exports, according to the preliminary agreement. So this could also take some pressure off China's energy dependence on the Middle East. But what about China's relationship with Iran? China remains opposed to Chinese, uh, to Chinese. China remains opposed to the Iranian nuclear program, but it also remains a major trading partner of Iran. It moved much closer to Tehran after the progress on the nuclear deal in 2013. And then after the US withdrawal and unilateral sanctions on Iran, China did reduce imports from Iran, but it didn't stop them completely. It continues to, put, to support the nuclear deal alongside Russia. And China also continues military cooperation with Iran, most recently in the form of joint military exercises just in December. So how will China continue this precarious balancing act? And then question number three. What are the possible political consequences of Chinese involvement in the region? I talked before about shared interests. Both Beijing and the Gulf states want stability and they want economic cooperation. China depends on countries like Saudi Arabia and Iran, but they also depend on China. And how could China's position in the Middle East affect regional stability or political dynamics? Well, perhaps most importantly, China models an alternative development path that's likely to be very attractive to some states in the region. It's presenting different standards on good governance, transparency, rule of law, etc., that have potential long-term consequences for the region as well. So how attractive is the China model versus the Washington consensus? China is currently exporting surveillance equipment and arms to multiple states in the region with no strings attached. Uh, they're involved in arms exports to Qatar, Saudi Arabia, and the UAE. Uh, China is now the world's biggest exporter of armed drones, according to a recent CIPRI report. And Chinese companies, including Huawei, Hikvision, and ZTE, in that order of importance, uh, are also spreading high-tech state authoritarianism through AI surveillance exports to Saudi Arabia, Iran, Iraq, Oman, and the UAE. So all of this could really deepen authoritarianism in the region and change political dynamics in that sense. At the same time, the entrenchment of Chinese state-owned enterprises in the region also legitimizes the Chinese state capitalist development model. Chinese SOEs are very badly regulated in overseas operations, uh, which leads to its own challenges to international uh, rules and norms on investment, on development finance, uh, but also on economic, social, and environmental protection more generally. So how might China's role in the region shape or change global norms? And just a few final thoughts. China's growing presence in the Middle East has the potential to reshape the region. The unpredictability of the current US administration makes it very difficult to say what's going to happen to geopolitics in the wider region. And where does all of this leave Europe? I think Europe is effectively losing significance. It's lost an ally in the United States because of the unpredictability of President Trump. But Europe itself also pre presents increasingly uh, a less appealing model, I think, with the rise of populism and also issues like Brexit. Uh, it looks increasingly chaotic to a lot of states around the world. And that's it for me. Uh, I think first uh, I want to discuss about Chinese uh, policy towards the Middle East. Uh, there are two very important documents. Uh, first is 2016 China's uh, policy paper to Arab world. And second one is President Xi's speech uh, in the headquarters of Arab League in 2016. Uh, but you know, there's no any uh, uh, policy paper or policy documents towards uh, on China's uh, uh, policy in the whole Middle East. 
so I mean, we can figure out some elements uh, uh, through our Chinese, you know, I mean, experience in dealing with the region. First, uh, China prefer cooperation between uh, major powers uh, like China, US, uh, China, Russia, China, European cooperation in the region. We believe, you know, it's very important to uh, keep the stability uh, in this region through this cooperation. And second, uh, China uh, have a balanced relations with the countries in the region. We don't take side. Uh, so we don't want to have any enemy in this region. Although we have problems, we have problems in, with the countries in the region, but we don't want to be enemy of them. So this balanced relations with Arab countries, um, non-Arab countries, Islamic countries, non-Islamic countries, uh, major regional powers or middle-sized or small-sized countries in the region, Shia or Sunni, uh, all of them. The third is uh, China, I think, support a strong government because we believe only the strong government can face their own challenges and find some solution of their own problems. So strong government means a strong political, security, and military institution, and also uh, uh, economic agenda with workable uh, economic projects. The fourth is uh, China follow the political uh, principles like respect of the sovereignty, uh, the integrity of the territory, uh, uh, non-interference, uh, peaceful solution, diplomatic solution. And the fifth point is uh, China always focus on economic development uh, because this is the advantage uh, of China. So uh, it's based on also Chinese interest, uh, uh, not only uh, traditional energy like oil and gas, but also new energy and renewable energy, and also uh, trade, investment, and construction contracts. The last one is uh, security. Uh, I think China would have to have more security cooperation in the regional countries, like uh, peacekeeping forces, uh, like you know joint military uh, exercise, uh, and also arms sale, all these fields. And second, I want to uh, talk about BRI. Uh, so. Uh, Many, uh, BRI was translated into OBOR, uh, one belt and one road. So this, you know, give a misunderstanding of people that it's a physical road uh, linking the countries, connecting the countries. But actually, it's not true. It's not a physical road. It's a network of projects and network of partnerships. Uh, because you know, this uh, uh, one belt one road uh, uh, came from the connectivity. Uh, it's an idea presented by ASEAN countries. But after that, China believed that you cannot connect all the ports uh, with you know, a physical road. So you can only focus on different projects in different countries. Uh, because you know, if there's a physical road, many GCC countries, especially Saudi Arabia and UAE, worried that they could be bypassed. Uh, and also, I think you know, it's, it's a network of partnership because uh, China doesn't want to seek any uh, alliance with the countries in the region because alliance uh, we'll focus on security issues, and it's a relationship not equal uh, because there would be a leader and followers. So partnership means we can focus on different uh, issues, especially economic issues, and based on the equal base. Uh, you know, we are uh, we respect each other, uh, and also you know it's not a strategy; it's an initiative. Uh, a strategy means you know we have clear idea, clear plan. No initiative means you know I mean we need to jointly construct uh, Belt and Road through jointly discussion and through joint uh, efforts. Uh, and I think, you know, from Asia to Europe, most of the countries, you know, uh, benefit or like, you know, to have cooperation with China on BRI in different forms. 
but also some uh, countries oppose that. Uh, the most important one is India, but India has very complicated relations with China. It's a part of, you know, I mean, BRICS uh, is a part of Shanghai Cooperation Organization. Uh, have China, uh, Russia, Indian, you know, trilateral uh, summit mechanism, but at the same time, India is very crucial for U.S. Uh, Indo-Pacific strategy, as a India, uh, U.S., Japanese uh, summit mechanism also. So it's very complicated. Yeah. Uh, the third issue I want to talk about, Iran. I think China has different understanding uh, on Iran from uh, uh, the U.S. We believe Iran is a, a regional power with global influence. And we believe Iran has legitimate interest in the Middle East. And also, uh, Iran you know, has played a constructive role uh, in this region. Uh, so I think it's totally different from U.S. And based on U.S. understanding, uh, U.S., you know, I mean, uh, in the Trump administration, uh, imposed sanctions uh, on Iran itself and also tried to push back Iran uh, in the region. So all these uh, uh, measures uh, are called uh, maximum uh, pressure. So in regard to Iran, I think U.S. focus on two things, the energy sector and also the uh, fi uh, financial sector, especially the payment channel. Uh, and also, uh, you know, in this region, we can see, you know, in Syria and Iraq, uh, U.S. try to, you know, I mean, uh, limit the Iranian's influence. Uh, so I think, you know, from Iranian side, uh, from 2008 uh, to 2009, uh, May, this one year, Iranians, you know, was very self-restrained. So Iranians call it uh, uh, strategic patience. They didn't respond. And after uh, uh, May 2019, uh, Iran adopted another policy. They call it uh, maximum resistance. So we can see the escalation uh, in last uh, June and July and de-escalation de in uh, August and, uh, uh, and uh, September, and then another escalation until what we have seen uh, in the killing of uh, General uh, Soleimani. So in this regard, I think there's a pattern that every time uh, when Iran showed some will to have diplomacy, uh, President Trump always considered it as a signal of the uh, success of maximum uh, pressure. So he will, you know, refuse, you know, any diplomacy further. So for Iranians, you know, if they want to have the escalation, President Trump will try to de-escalate the situation. So it's a, you know, it's uh, cannot produce any uh, positive uh, uh, result, you know, through this you know, this kind of circle. So Iranians, I think, they decided that they have to escalate until push President Trump on the corner that either he has a military confrontation with Iran or he has a full-scale uh, diplomacy with Iran. So I think, you know, this is an uncertain process. So for China, I think, you know, uh, we really uh, prefer de-escalation in the region because any military confrontation can hurt the region as a whole and can hurt, you know, the interests of not only China but European countries. And also, we believe that uh, since President Trump has quit from GCPOA, he cannot allow GCPOA to survive in a good shape. So he will try to, you know, I mean, uh, destroy the GCPOA totally. And then with this, I think he pushed European countries and also have pressure on Iran to quit from GCPOA. Uh, and then I think, you know, it's also a very important uh, 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 field of cooperation between China, Russia, and European countries to keep the framework of GCPOA because I think it's, uh, it can guarantee to some extent the stability and security uh, in the region. Uh, then I want to talk about GCC countries. 
China, Saudi Arabia. Uh, I think China and Saudi Arabia, you know, ha have a very strong uh, cooperation, especially for Saudi Arabia. Now is a crucial time for them to shift their strategic uh, center from Persian Gulf to Red Sea region. So, I mean, Saudi Arabia tried to develop all the big projects, you know, on the coast of Red Sea, the Jizan Industrial Park in the uh, south, and the Niom City, you know, in the north, and also, you know, all these uh, Yenbu uh, refinery projects. So I think, you know, for Saudi Arabia, they want to uh, uh, cooperate with China in the framework BRI to facilitate the shift of uh, strategic e uh, economic uh, uh, focus, you know, to Red Sea region. So Saudi Arabia, you know, present the whole uh, Jizan Industrial City projects uh, for China, you know, as a key projects of uh, BRI cooperation. Uh, and then UAE also is a very special country uh, because, you know, I mean, UAE ha has established a special model uh, for a, a leadership to leadership uh, uh, relationship uh, with China. So we have seen uh, two years ago, Chinese president, vice president uh, made visits to UAE and also, you know, uh, UAE, uh, uh, Abu Dhabi, Crown Prince MBZ, you know, um, made a visit to China and President Xi met with him twice on one day. So all this, you know, are special cases. Uh, so through this, you know, leadership to leadership uh, relationship, UAE want to be um, uh, a full-scale, all-dimension uh, partner for China in the BRI, not only for bilateral cooperation, but also uh, on the uh, third party, like, you know, in Pakistan or the other countries. Uh, Qatar, also very important because uh, uh, natural gas would be more and more important for China. And Qatar, I think, is a, a, uh, one of the largest producer and exporter of uh, natural gas. So in this regard, you know, China and Qatar has, have signed you know, uh, uh, several contracts for long-term uh, uh, natural gas uh, cooperation. Uh, so in this, you know, I mean, two sides of the Persian Gulf, China tried to have strong economic cooperation with them. China didn't take side in any conflicts between them, not Iran, Saudi, not, you know, uh, uh, Saudi, UAE against Qatar. So I think, you know, China would try the best to, you know, be the, be the uh, uh, neutral one, you know, in this, in this region. The last uh, point I want to mention, China-U.S. relations. Uh, China uh, uh, and U.S. share the same interests in the Middle East, the long-term and short-term stability. Uh, so this can, you know, be, uh, be uh, helpful for, for both China and, and U.S. So uh, I don't think, you know, for the interest of either China or the U.S. to extend China-U.S. Um, differences from Asia, Pacific, to the Middle East, from trade uh, issues, you know, to the Middle East. So, uh, and also the region, the countries in the region also try to avoid that, for example, Israel, the uh, U.S. has a uh, big concern over the Haifa port projects, uh, also 5G cooperation between Israel and China, or AI cooperation. But Israelis, you know, I mean, really want to avoid, you know, I mean, this uh, China-U.S. differences would be influence uh, Israeli-China cooperation or Israeli-U.S. Uh, alliance. So they try to push U.S. to um, uh, clarify, you know, their concerns over Israeli-China uh, cooperation. So, I mean, U.S. must, you know, tell Israelis that, okay, our very concrete, clear concerns uh, is a wish point. So, based on this, you know, Israelis can have as uh, 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 much cooperation with China uh, uh, as they can. So, I think, you know, in this regard, China and U.S. should uh, continue to find a way of cooperation in the Middle East. So, there are two approaches. One approach is that since China and U.S. cannot have cooperation in Asia, how could they have cooperation in the Middle East? 
But the second approach is that if China and U.S. can have cooperation in the Middle East, this can strengthen China-U.S. relations globally, especially in Asia. So it depends on you know, the two countries uh, take which approach. I think this is a very important in the future. Thank you. Thank you very much. Good evening, everyone. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you, Ruzbe, for the introduction. Uh, <clears throat> I'm like, obviously in a, in a very difficult position because uh, I need to represent the entire Persian Gulf region with different countries, different interests. Uh, and not only different interests, as we heard, also different tensions within the Persian Gulf region. We heard about, in the past, it was only about Iran and the GCC. Now we have uh, also tensions within the GCC. So it, there is no way I can represent the entire region, but I will try to uh, start with some commonalities in this region and then move to perceptions and then try to, to gauge how these perceptions and, and emerging realities will Will, will impact the region and end with the question that Yona asked, can Chinese relations in, in, in the Persian Gulf region reshape the region? Because that, I think that's, that's one of the key geopolitical uh, reasons we are here or, or questions we have. First of all, as Ruzbe said, perception is, is the key word. There are, there are a lot of perceptions, but both the perceptions but, and the realities are, are shifting. It's important to know none of these fact, whether it's the perception we have in our region or the realities we have on the ground, none of them are uh, static. They are, they are shifting and that creates uh, multi-dimensional complexities that we have to deal with. Now let's start from the commonalities. One of the commonalities in our region is our culture. And, and some of the cultural traits we have that create tensions in, internally regionally and internationally, is, our, is the win-lose mentality. We on our region have a win-lose mentality. We cannot, on that level, we cannot really understand the win-win-win mentality that the Chinese bring to our region. You know, how can you be friends with Iran, Saudi Arabia, Israel at the same time and always try to have a no enemy uh, uh, situation? It's culturally a challenge. I'm not saying it's static, it's moving. Our culture is also moving. But there, the, the first sort of clash of cultures uh, is there. The second clash of cultures is the conspiracy mind we have in our region. We are conspiracy minded. Whether we like it or not, we are conspiracy minded. A great power coming to our region usually was always accompanied by some conspiracies to the detriment or to the benefit of some of the players. The third clash, which also plays a role in in, in judging the situation is the timelines. We, we know the Chinese as these long-term planners. They come with a long-term strategy and, and investment plan. We sit there with our very short-term, you know, at best a couple of years plan for into the future. Forget all the visions that we have, Vision 2030 and Vision 2025. Those are, those are paper, you know, reports. But the reality is that the timelines are different. And, and that's, that's through these cultural clashes, you already have the first built-in tensions between the Persian Gulf uh, and, and China as, a, as an emerging, I would call it phenomenon, sitting in the Persian Gulf. China is a phenomenon. China is an emerging, growing world power that's economically, technologically, and uh, uh, in terms of finance, very important. But we still need to fully understand uh, what China means. So when you are sitting in the Persian Gulf region, 
what are the, the elements that sort of come to mind when you think of China? One, and all of these elements have been mentioned. I just want to give you the, the Persian Gulf perspective. Number one is obviously energy. China is a big and growing energy market for the producers, energy producers in our region. But there is an important nuance that we need to understand, and that's more sort of for the geopolitical discussion we will have later. But if we believe that the world is moving more and more towards gas consumption, natural gas consumption, as, as opposed to crude oil consumption, then the potential suppliers of that gas in the Persian Gulf region are reduced to only two. That's Iran and Qatar. If you think of oil, you have a multiplicity of suppliers, but if you think of gas, you only have two. And geopolitical developments in our region have pushed these two together. The Saudi, UAE blockade against Qatar pushed Qatar towards Iran. And, and, and right now we have an, a, a new axis in the region which all of the international players have to, have to consider. The second topic is China is a source of uh, technology, economic cooperation, trade, and finance for the region. More and more, we heard it from Yona, the diversi di diversifying economic activity means that you have to have a more closer look at China, not just as, a, as an energy market, but also as a market and as a source of technology and investment and a growing trend towards China being a source of finance, even for trade and investments uh, with other countries, which is, which is increasing the significance of China. The third aspect you, you think about is security. Security for the countries in the Persian Gulf goes beyond just thinking about energy security and maritime security. And again, it was mentioned earlier, um, there is an internal security issue. And the internal security issue ties very well to the political developments in each of these countries and to the sort of a surveillance element of political developments, especially in a, in a, in a uh, world that's growingly complex through the uh, social media and internet connectivity and so on. So what I mean is for a number of players in this region, both governments and also civil society uh, and, and political activists and human rights activists, China is either a threat because it gives opportunities to the governments in this region to increase their surveillance, increase their security, internal security aspects, not just through technology, but also through the political concepts that are emerging. But for the governments, it's an opportunity. I can tell you, for example, uh, the Iranian government looks very closely at Chinese developments in the, in the sense of internal, um, uh, in the, the, the sort of in-country internet infrastructure that they have, the national interest, that, and Iran is imitating that completely because that also gives them opportunities to, to disrupt some of the international connections that, uh, that exist. Perceptions are also driven by some inter international phenomena that are happening. I, Huawei and Alibaba are symbols of chi international Chinese success. And some of the people and decision makers in these countries uh, needed these types of symbols to believe more and more uh, in, in China, as, as I said, as a source of technology 
uh, and, and, and source of uh, economic growth. And as mentioned uh, by Bing Bing, the Belt, Belt and Road Initiative is obviously a clear sample of Chinese investment in these countries and Chinese, sort of the Chinese potential uh, that comes to this region. So I think all of these elements are playing a role. Uh, but let's now come to this question. Can Chinese involvement, investment, cooperation in this region really reshape this region? I think those are just two, two dimensions of a very complex multidimensional puzzle that we have to deal with. And some of the other dimensions were mentioned, US-China uh, US relations. Just to tell you, uh, Iran right now is worried about the potential res the resolution of the US-China tariff war, because if that is resolved, it could have a negative impact on Iran-China relations. Uh, and you can continue this puzzle, this multi-dimensional multi puzzle, includes US-Russia, China-Russia, Persian Gulf region, Russia relations, and so on. So it's, it's not an easy puzzle to solve. And the biggest problem is that the different dimensions we are talking about are moving all the time. One event could change the, the relationships, could change the dynamics, could change the priorities. So um, I would say that the most important development based on all the factors that we discussed is that China has moved from being a plan B or sometimes plan C for some of these countries to uh, gradually becoming a plan A for a number of these countries. And this is important because it will redefine some of the other relations between the Persian Gulf countries and world powers. But I don't think that this is the, now the new situation that we have to deal with. All of these phenomena that we discuss here can change, and I will stop here to, to have more time for discussion. But I think it's important to understand that it's, a change, it's an evolving situation. Thank you very much. Okay, so we have a lot of uh, food for thought here to deal with. So I'm going to throw out some questions, and then we'll see who is brave enough to take them on. Um, and, and of course, this, has the, this goes from one end to the other end of the spectrum. Now, uh, both Yona and Bingbing, you were discussing this no problem, uh, or rather no enemy. If problems, yes, that's realistic to expect, but no enemy policy, in a sense. And China, just like Russia, uh, has so far, at least as far as I know, been quite willing to sell arms to just about every country in the Middle East, which is a significant difference between them and, say, the US and Europe. Um, now, if, you, if we were to, to imagine what the next step would be in a kind of uh, development of that linkage, you would say that the next one is to have military cooperation, right? Uh, a bit like the recent maneuvers that Russia, Iran, and China did, which both the Russians and the Iranians played up, while the Chinese were being quite, you know, they said it was a maneuver like any other they have with everyone. So for them, it wasn't anything in particular. It didn't signify anything in particular. And so if military cooperation is the next step, is that on the horizon? And the third step then would be military presence a bit like the, the foothold that China has in the base in Djibouti. Now, could you imagine <clears throat> that China would go down that path? 
And would they go down that path by choice? Or would they go down that path because they had chosen politically and therefore found themselves in the need of also cooperating militarily? You see what I mean? So, I mean, either they end up having to do military cooperation because they have finally been forced to choose in a, a dispute, if you will, in the region, or the other way around. They simply realize that their economic footprint needs to be matched otherwise in the region. So that's one question. It's, if you will, a sliding scale towards, if not being bogged down and at least ending up in the Middle East in a way that they perhaps do not foresee at the moment, but which would resemble the American presence a bit more than it does now. Bing Bing, you were saying that this is not so much a strategy as organic development, the Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, and it's partnerships rather than alliances. But this again goes back to my first question. How tenable is this in the long run? And will then it be accidental alliances or it will be strategic? That is, how much forethought will there be to this and how much of it will be just kind of happenstance? The economic development and investment that China is doing is, as some of you have mentioned, also meeting resistance and skepticism for various reasons. Um, is there a kind of a ceiling to how far China can go with this particular model of economic investment? Uh, and at some point, it will have to turn into something more cooperative in the sense of employing more people on the ground from the country rather than bringing Chinese workers, etc. that kind of thing. And the being forced to choose, to what extent is Trump involved in that kind of scenario? I will get back to the EU, which is in a sense the, the, the missing bit here, perhaps. And finally, of course, the crescendo. They don't want to choose. They don't have any enemies. But what if there was to be a war? Because if you go back to the American invasion of Iraq, at least the way it was portrayed at the time, it was also, if you will, a huge blow to Chinese investments, both politically in the stability and literally investment. Um, and that was just blown out of the sky, basically. And then when <clears throat> Iraq was turned into this kind of uh, neoliberal free entrepreneurship thing uh, by the US Republican Party, Chinese companies were not let in. Right? So basically, everything was a free-for-all for American companies. That was supposed to be part of the payback for the costs of the invasion. Now, if there is a war between the US and Iran, what will China do? Just small questions. Thank you. Where do I start? Um, is military cooperation the next step, and what about military presence? Military cooperation wouldn't surprise me that much, I think. Military presence, I highly doubt. And I think even only if China was forced, and even then I highly doubt it, at least in the near future. I think in the longer term, kind of post next 10, 15 years, who knows? I mean, Chinese policy is continually evolving, but I think it's evolving quite slowly. So I don't see any kind of sudden shifts like that in the next uh, uh, kind of near future, uh, particularly in terms of military presence. Military cooperation, I think, is a little bit more flexible. And like I said, you, will, you already see that uh, in the most recent military exercises with Iran and Russia um, in December. In terms of economic investment, is there a ceiling to how far China can go? Um, yes and no. I think the BRI is here to stay. It's in the Chinese constitution and it's not going to go away uh, as long as Xi Jinping is president at least. But there is a ceiling in terms of 
profitability and efficiency. There's already been a lot of uh, doubts thrown up by some of the uh, investments made under the BRI around these issues um, with a lot of unprofitable investments, but that's already being tightened up. So I think there's already a, a slow shift coming there in terms of um, more strategic investments and thinking more about the consequences, uh, economically speaking, rather than politically, uh, of some of the investments. At the same time, there's also a different ceiling perhaps in political terms. Uh, so BRI, not so much in the Middle East, but in a lot of other countries like Pakistan, Sri Lanka, Malaysia, has led to a lot of civilian opposition domestically. Uh, we could see something similar in the Middle East, particularly because of the domestic conditions with uh, particular problems with corruption, but also uh, unemployment issues, which BRI is certainly not solving in any of, its, uh, uh, in any of, any of the countries that China has invested in under the BRI. So in that sense, I think there could also be a political ceiling to, to those investments. Let me comment on um, uh, this sort of economic slash political ceiling for Chinese investments. Again, we are talking about perceptions, but there is an important perception uh, in our region uh, that part of the BR, BR, BRI initiative is transferring uh, surplus capacity from China to other countries. That is obviously not, uh, in, in, to use the sort of regional word for us, dignified. Uh, our countries would expect uh, the latest technology, you know, that, that would expect that technology to be transferred. So I think China needs to package BRI as a complete phenomenon, but also uh, individual partnerships, individual investments in a way that is, it is more acceptable. And, and what we have seen in the past in the region does not support the idea that it will happen. So it, there, there has to be a, a clear change in, in strategy. And you mentioned a couple of the, the aspects that are important. It has to create, the investments have to create new jobs, have to, have to transfer technology, have to maybe create even new markets, uh, markets for, for, for those initiatives. So it's not going to be easy, but it's definitely feasible and, and uh, 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 we need to look, look at how, how these projects emerge. Just one comment, and this is only from the Iranian perspective. I, 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 I don't think we can make a sort of unified statement about everyone, but if China got to the point where it would ask the countries for military presence, I think it will become, it will sort of experience a major political backlash in the region. So that the tendency is more towards getting rid of the existing military, pre, uh, military bases. So it may actually be better for China to use the political engagement to say this region requires an, an a regional security arrangement. It doesn't require, you know, international presence, and that way get the other present, the other military presences out of the region rather than creating its own. I think you know. I mean, we we try to learn from the experience or lessons of the U.S. That even U.S. destroy Iraq, it cannot achieve its security in the region. So it means that military presence itself, you know, cannot guarantee the security and stability in the region. So. China, I think, uh, has a, a clear idea of soft protection of our interest in the region. Soft protection means we don't need to use military forces 
we uh, use our relations with the governments and the people, uh, use our, you know, I mean, uh, image, use our, you know, uh, economic influence to have as many as friends to protect our interests. So in Libya, in uh, Syria, Iraq, uh, Yemen, you know, we have done this. We didn't send any troops. Uh, even we sent some, you know, I mean, uh, warships, but try to evacuate Chinese from uh, these countries only. So uh, this soft protection of Chinese overseas interest <clears throat> is a key uh, concept uh, of uh, our uh, policy, you know, in this region. So that's why I, I, I fully agree that a Chinese military presence, I don't think it's a, 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 it's a workable, you know, idea for China. Uh, and second one, uh, uh, you mentioned, you know, I mean, uh, whether China, you know, if China has more interest in the region, uh, then China has to take side. So I think generally speaking now, maybe for a, a, a very long period of time, the three camp structure would survive in this region. Uh, Iran and pro-Iran camp, uh, Syria, Iraq, Lebanon, uh, Houthis in Yemen, Afghanistan, and brotherhood uh, and pro-brotherhood camp, Turkey, Qatar, all these Muslim Brotherhood forces, and also this, you know, I mean, Israel, uh, Saudi Arabia, UAE, anti-Iran, anti-Muslim Brotherhood camp. So it's very clear that yeah, Mr. Trump, you know, has adopted a policy to take side, to support uh, the, the third camp, the anti-Iran, anti-Muslim Brotherhood camp uh, uh, with Israel, Saudi Arabia, and UAE. Uh, and I think Russians, you know, I mean, try to have strong relation with the first two camps. But China want to have, you know, I mean, relations with all. Because, you know, if you take side, uh, it's a camp. It's not one country. It's not a short-term phenomena. You are going to have a long-term uh, conflict with the whole camp. So that's why, based on this, I believe uh, Chinese, China would, you know, uh, exert all the efforts to keep our no-enemy policy as long as possible. <clears throat> the third question about, you know, China's company will change the behavior. Yes, Chinese companies, you know, uh, are you know in transition to hire more local people? Very clear in Egypt, especially the Suez Canal, you know, I mean uh, zone. So China really want to have more uh, local, uh, not only workers but also you know for the management level. You know, we want to have as many as Egyptians we can have, and also in GCC countries, you know, we know the Saudization pro uh, policy. You know, in Qatar we have the same policy. They want they they, they impose you know the certain percentage of local laborers. But I think China want to hire more because what? Because what? First, uh, in China, <clears throat> the salary uh, increased very fast. So to come to this region, I mean, the people cannot uh, make a, a, a satisfactory uh, salary as they, they expect. Uh, I think you know if they come to the GCC country to uh, make a, a monthly salary like 1,500 US dollar, they cannot be satisfied. But compared to the uh, labor force from, uh, you know, I mean, India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, uh, I don't think, you know, Chinese workers accept, you know, uh, such a low salary first. And second, I have to say this, uh, young Chinese, you know, I mean, uh, most of them are the only uh, child in their family. So, you know, in this country, you know, all this, uh, you know, very hot weather, you know, all these conditions, I don't think they can accept that. So less and less Chinese young people would come out work at the labor force, even as a management, you know, I mean, uh, uh, positions. So that's why I say, you know, Chinese companies have to have this uh, transition. And the last one uh, about, you know, I mean, uh, if there's a war, I think we have to, you know, I mean, uh, remember the experience of the Iraq war and also the Gulf war. 
before the war, you know, China can play some role of mediation. Uh, Chinese uh, foreign minister made a visit uh, to Iraq and Kuwait, you know, before the Gulf War. And also China had cooperation with Germany, France, Russia, <coughs> try to stop Iraq war. But if US really decided to go to the war, I don't think anyone can stop them, right? Iraq, Iraq war is very clear. Even the cooperation uh, between the four main countries, we cannot stop US. So we have to, you know, I mean, wait and see to see what we can do after the war, right? Reconstruction, uh, humanitarian aid, anything like that. So, I mean, uh, I think war is a disaster. But uh, as I said, you know, we cannot stop. Jumping back in on that last question, what would China do if there was a war in the region between US and uh, Iran? I think you would see a China-shaped hole in the proverbial Iranian wall. I think they would be straight out of Iran and no questions asked. That would be my prediction. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, that's interesting because, I mean, obviously, most relations with countries that are on a sm are smaller are, by definition, a, a, an extension of the relationship between China and the U.S. rather than an, an, a, 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 a policy on its own, so to speak. It doesn't stand on its own. Okay, good. So <clears throat> we've kind of settled a couple of these small questions. Um, I just wanted to go back now to, to the kind of the Middle Eastern uh, perspective on this. Chinese investments and the much smaller political footprint from China. The different countries in the Middle East are trying to entice China in various degrees and with various methods. Comments on that, and then in extension, Russia and the European Union. And I want to particularly uh, focus on the European Union, not in general, because we are in Europe and we're obsessed with ourselves, but rather because the European Union was key to the JCPOA, which is the kind of international agreement that a lot of the conflicts that we're seeing at the moment, the tension, which China also has to deal with, has come as a focal point for. So what will happen uh, with the JCPOA? What is the Chinese position on this? And from the Chinese perspective, is Europe still at the table doing what? Yeah, I, again, we have, we have different motivations in, in the different countries. Um, <laughs> Uh, for engaging China. Uh, for Iran, um, the collapse of the, the so-called JCPOA, the nuclear deal, uh, in, in a sense, the, the fact that Iran cannot really benefit from European technology, European investments uh, under the current circumstances means that Iran has to look for other um, other sources of technology, especially investment. I think the case of Iran, it's a lot more about investment uh, than, than it is about technology at this stage. Um, and obviously for that, China is a, is a very good source. Uh, even though uh, the, the perception again in Iran is that Chinese technology is not as superior as, as Western technology. This, this is definitely has always been an impediment in, in developing a deeper uh, economic and technological relationship with China. But the facts on the ground today is that China, both in terms of exports and also imports, is the number one trading partner of Iran. So, so out of necessity, they have, they have reached out and, and China has, has responded. I don't think China has uh, opened all the doors. Uh, and I heard over our previous discussion with Bing Bing that there was also a sense of uh, disappointment in China that Iran, as soon as the doors opened, rushed towards Western 
uh, technology partners and investment partners and, and neglected China. So I, I think there, it's, it's def definitely out of necessity currently. There, there is a, an attempt to develop a deeper relationship. This time, Iran has attended a number of the meetings of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. It's trying to you know, develop a, a more strategic relationship. Now, if you compare this to, to Russia, the way Russia, or let, let me actually, sorry, let me finish China, China because the other, the other players in the Persian Gulf, the other countries, they are reaching out to China out of choice. I mean, they, they don't have the limitations that Iran has, right? They don't, they are not exposed to sanctions the way Iran is exposed to sanctions and they, they have definitely a bigger choice. But the, in my view, the, the shift, um, came about partly because of this desire for diversification, as, as, as we heard earlier. But don't forget, if we go back 10, 15 years and talk to the strategists of, for example, Saudi Arabia or, or Qatar and so on, they had planned their sort of the next couple of decades based on the US being their main market for their energy exports. Qatar had even invested billions of dollars in LNG facilities in the US to receive LNG from Qatar and basically regasify it and then put it into the, the, the US, um, US grid, gas grid. That all changed because of the so-called shale oil and shale gas revolution in the US. In the US, in the meantime, is not only an uh, not only not an importer but actually an exporter of, of oil and gas and and that changed the dynamics so that's why still today china being a very significant oil and gas market is the key factor but once you want to reach out to that oil and gas market you obviously see the necessity of developing further further contacts and, uh, and, and also looking at them as a market beyond energy products and also obviously technological uh, and investment process. So the motivations of getting there were, were very different. Um, and I, I think um, with all the different geopolitical developments, it's, it's, it will be also a sustainable also for the, uh, the sort of Arab Persian Gulf countries. Uh, looking at China. Now, when we compare that very quickly with uh, Russia and Europe as the other signatories of the nuclear deal, Russia is also engaging Iran and, and vice versa. Iran is much more interested in, in developing relations with Russia. Uh, Iran has also joined or has signed the so-called preferential trade agreement with the Eurasian Economic Union, which is a union of countries around Russia, and, and they are already increasing their trade. The positions were, have, have been very different. I mean, China has been Iran's number one trading partner for decades now. Russia has been one of the smallest trading partners for Iran. Uh, so building up on, uh, on Russia or expanding trade with Russia is, is not as, as challenging as expanding it with China. Europe is the exact opposite. Europe has not managed to really sustain uh, the potential. So there was a time, I think, in, the, in 2007, 2008, where uh, the European Union as a whole was a much larger trading partner for Iran than China. But it has never managed to return to that level, partly because of sanctions, partly because of uh, 
other challenges, political challenges, and so on. So if we try to bring all of this together and ask ourselves the question, will the nuclear deal, will the JCPOA survive? Um, I think there is a desire for it to survive as a structure, also in Iran. But um, there are too many political, again, political var variables. For example, this recent um, initiation of the so-called dispute resolution mechanism within the JCPOA by the Europeans turns out that it was an, a, a consequence of US putting pressure on the European Union saying, if you don't do this, we are going to increase tariffs on European exports to, to the US. So you can see all these complex relationships. So again, it's, we cannot say with certainty whether it will survive, survive or not, but we know that the desire is there in the remaining signatories to at least maintain the structure so that um, maybe a next US president can return to it. So, and that's again the big question. Will there be another president next year in the White House or will this still be Trump? So too many complexities, but I hope I tried, I, I highlighted some of the issues. Um, I agree with everything you said, basically. I think China will continue to support the JCPOA, but at the same time, US-China relations is very much going to shape how this evolves. And those negotiations are obviously ongoing, and it's quite difficult to predict how they're going to pan out at this point. We've only had the phase, phase one part of the agreement so far. Uh, I think China wants Europe to remain at the table, and I think, like you said, that I think there is a desire to maintain the structure among those still involved, but a lot of... Um, the uncertainty comes from partly the U.S. elections coming up, but also the, the general unpredictability of, of the Trump administration, I think. Based on my understanding, uh, Iran for the Europe is not a nuclear issue or is not an economic benefit issue. It's the security for Europe itself. Uh, you see, I mean, uh, as I said, you know, I mean, the situation is different from 1991 Gulf War and 2003 uh, Iraq War because now after the two rounds of Arab Spring, 2011 and 2019, there's so many countries are in chaotic situation. So if you add one more, you know, major uh, power in the region uh, to, uh, to be in the chaotic situation, you can imagine how this region uh, can be. And also, I have mentioned Iran is not one country, it's a camp. So Iran, you know, I mean, uh, uh, all this, you know, pro-Iranian forces will try to protect Iran. And also, I believe that, you know, Iran will not collapse without fighting. So we can see in Syria, Iraq, Lebanon, Yemen, Afghanistan, there could be fighting. And also Israel, UAE, and uh, Saudi Arabia, Qatar would be influenced. So if there's any military confrontation, you will face a, a situation that I think European countries all will be influenced. Uh, so that's why I say, you know, I mean, all the efforts to keep the framework of JCPOA is try to avoid a war uh, between Iran and US. Uh, I mean, GCPOA, you know, I think for me, to, uh, the main goal is to keep Iranians, you know, have a hope. Yeah, although you, you, try, you cannot deliver any economic benefit, but at least, you know, Iranians have a hope. If you, you know, I mean, uh, make Iranians lose the hope, you cannot imagine what can happen. Uh, and uh, I think, you know, also GCPOA means, you know, I mean, uh, goodwill for goodwill. For Iranians, we try to um, uh, uh, limit their... Uh, nuclear uh, programs, but for uh, Europeans, you know, I mean, you should offer uh, some uh, economic benefits to Iranians. But after Trump quit from GCPOA and the expected economic benefits cannot be delivered to the Iranians, I think, you know, I mean, Iranians uh, cannot, you know, I mean, uh, fully implement all the commitments. 
because you know for the uh, nationalist sentiments among the Iranians and also the Iranian government, you know, current position, they have to show something. So I think based on that, I understand the self-restraint uh, upgrading or escalation of their nuclear programs. But in this regard, since European countries are the most ones who will be influenced by the uncontrolled situation, so European countries have to do more. You cannot expect Russia and China to do more than European countries. Let us now allow the audience to ask questions. Um, I'm going to emphasize questions, not camouflage speeches. Yeah. Hi. Thank you for a great uh, talk. My name is Julian Tucker. I work at the Institute for Security and Development Policy. Um, and I have a question that I'll try to make as succinct as possible, um, primarily for Dr. Wu, but I'm happy to hear any input. Um, my question is primarily about um, perceptions, as you talked about, or uh, reactions, specifically about the relationship between China and Iraq. Uh, in September of last year, uh, an Iraqi delegation traveled to Beijing, and they signed a number of memoranda of understanding uh, with, um, uh, with the PRC government. And at the time, uh, President Xi called uh, Iraq a main and strategic partner and emphasized uh, the, uh, the China model and the importance of the BRI for promoting uh, stability and peaceful development. Uh, however, a couple of weeks later, clashes in southern Iraq led to major demonstrations in which uh, subsequently hundreds of people have been killed and thousands have been injured. And I was curious about the response of the Chinese leadership to this development in, uh, in Iraq. Uh, how does this feature with the soft protection of interests that you mentioned and uh, having more local people uh, involved in uh, BRI-related projects. Thank you. I have two issues, among many puzzling issues about uh, China's march in the international community. One, in the Middle East, what do, does Iran say something or Saudi Arabia say something about the treatment of China of the Uyghur Muslims? putting them in camps. And secondly, in connection with the BIR perception, be it a strategy or a partner uh, initi partnership initiative, Professor uh, Wu, what do you say about China's building of artificial islands in the Pacific, even close to Indonesia and the Philippines? And building those islands, China claims sovereignty. Uh, we have talked about uh the geoeconomics of China's presence, etc. Uh, we, we, it was also highlighted that uh, uh, China does not want to go into a military cooperation. But there's an, uh, another point I would like to raise, and that is, uh, wouldn't it be, uh, what about the, the Chinese uh, as, a, as a great power? We don't see, we don't see the, uh, very much China present in, for instance, multilateral fora uh, and uh, um, resolution of conflicts. I'm talk. I'm, you know, just to mention one or two. Uh, now, what's happening in Libya? And uh, don't uh, let's not forget Palestine, which is <laughs> uh, uh, still there anyway. So why don't we see more Chinese, more China involved in this multilateral uh, conflict uh, resolution mechanism? Thank you. Thank you. Okay, please. First, for Iraq, <clears throat> I think Chinese, uh, in the beginning, we consider Iraq uh, not as a BRI uh, projects, uh, program, but as a reconstruction issue. Uh, because, you know, BRI means it should be based on the uh, commercial uh, 
rules, you know, it's not aid, you know. Uh, so for Iraq, there are so many uncertainties, security challenges. So Iraq, Syria should be put in the category of reconstruction. But then, you know, I think the situation in Iraq is more and more stabilized. Uh, and also, I think Iraqi government really, you know, want to uh, uh, attract more Chinese investment. So I think based on that, you know, China think to have cooperation in the framework of BRI will bring more Chinese investment in Iraq and would be helpful to stabilize uh, Iraq, I think. Uh, but even the current situation, I don't think, you know, they oppose Chinese investment because it's good for the country. I remember, you know, in the year 2014, when ISIS was in its peak, uh, Iraqi uh, government really asked Chinese uh, companies to stay in Iraq as the strategic help for Iraq. Uh, because we don't need to send any troops, we don't need to give any aid, but Chinese companies' presence, uh, presence in, the, in the country itself would be uh, very helpful, I think. Uh, for uh, uh, this uh, uh, Xinjiang issue, I think you know, China uh, uh, has very, uh, uh, I think, uh, understanding you know, with the uh, countries in the region, uh, Iran, uh, Saudi Arabia, uh, UAE, Egypt, uh, Turkey, even Turkey. For uh, uh, BRI, I think it's very, as I mentioned, it's an initiative, it's not a strategy. Because in the very beginning, uh, I understand uh, in 2013, when China launched, launched the idea of BRI, mainly focused on two regions, Central Asia and uh, ASEAN countries. That's why BRI you know, started uh, uh, in Kazakhstan and Indonesia. Uh, so the, uh, the, the idea during that time was to stabilize the neighboring countries. But gradually, you know, it's extended, you know, to include more Eurasian countries, Middle Eastern countries, and European countries. So it seems like, you know, uh, 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 Asia and Europe uh, integration projects. But then, you know, we can see now uh, Latin American countries, you know, U.S., Canada, African countries, Pacific countries could be part of that. So I think, you know, there's a process of involvement, uh, evolution, I mean, evolution. So it, it's very clear it's an initiative. So as a strategy, you know, I mean, you have to have a, a very clear uh, agenda, very clear, you know, I mean, uh, uh, measures. But I think for, that's why, you know, I mean, BRI is very important because uh, the hosting countries, the partners of China, their ideas are very important to us. We need their, you know, suggestions and then we can respond to that. Uh, for this, uh, 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 this uh, reclamation of the, the, the airlines you know, in South China Sea. I have to say China is, was not the first country to do so in South China Sea. Uh, the countries you know, uh, around South China Sea like uh, Vietnam and other countries have done this before China. Uh, so I mean, uh, uh, and also uh, I don't think China tried to militarize uh, this uh, airlines, you know, I mean, to make this a point of confrontation with, with the countries in the South China Sea. It's very clear. Uh, and also, I mean, related to the last question, I think China and the, and the countries around South China Sea have agreed to a kind of code of behavior. So it's a kind of, you know, multilateral uh, uh, arrangement. So in the Middle East, I think China is a newcomer. Uh, we don't have a lot of experience. But in Asia, uh, China has tried to do a lot in this regard. Does Iran or others in the region say anything about China's treatment of Uyghur Muslims? I think, as far as I understand it, all the Muslim-majority countries have remained largely silent on the situation in Xinjiang. Uh, with some exceptions, there were some statements from Turkey and I think also Malaysia. 
Um, might this change in the future? Economic ties makes that quite difficult, I think. It's quite hard for these countries to stand up for China when they become increasingly economically dependent on China. Um, and then at the same time, I think we can't forget that a lot of these countries don't have great human rights records themselves. It's difficult to see Saudi Arabia lecturing China about human rights abuses, for instance. So, and the question about uh, China as a great power and Chinese involvement in multilateral forums. Well, I think China has a long history of non-interference, so that's part of the reason why we don't see more Chinese involvement. But at the same time, this is changing. Uh, I think we see China playing a significant role in the UN climate change negotiations, for instance, particularly under the Paris Agreement. Uh, but also in the JCPOA negotiations. So this is slowly changing, I think, um, though perhaps not so much in uh, conflict resolution. Just want to chip in on what Jonas said. I mean, I think it can't be emphasized enough that the idea that somehow religion would may compel governments to, to you know, either reject or accept something or denounce something, I think is is highly idealistic. I mean, most of these states, their first principle is realpolitik. And even, I mean, Saudi Arabia has no dependency on China economically, has absolutely no, no need for it. They have a sovereign wealth fund which will keep them afloat for decades to come. But for political reasons, for, for their own realpolitik reasons, uh, those kind of issues are, are basically not on the table. Okay, uh, second round of questions. I'm calling um, my question is, um, uh, one often hear that uh, BRI connects with the economic track from China to poor country. How can this be explained? I think people, I mean, uh, should understand that uh, it's not China imposed BRI to other countries. If the other countries, you know, want to have the cooperation with China, you cannot impose the others to uh, attract investment. You cannot impose the others to uh, uh, attract you know, technology transferring. Uh, I mean, uh, also in response to Mr. Bijan's, you know, I mean, uh, definition, China doesn't want to uh, uh, transit surplus capability of uh, uh, production you know, to the other countries. Uh, it's not either you know, advanced technology, it's suitable technology, right? These countries need different levels of technology. Even you transfer the most advanced technology, I don't think this country can just, you know, I mean, digest it easily, right? So they need different layers of technology. So some technology is not the most advanced, but it's good for this country to build their own labor-intensive manufacturing sector to create as many as jobs, right? So I think, you know, it's not surplus, it's not the most advanced, it's the suitable technology. So can you impose this to the other countries? So I, I don't think, you know, it's a real trap, you know, it's the demand of these countries. Uh, so they accept cooperation with China on in the framework of BRI. But how to make all these projects successful is based on experience, because uh, 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 as I understand, <clears throat> uh, China, you know, I mean, uh, maybe don't understand the, the, the situation uh, in many countries in, in the Middle East, Iraq, Syria or some other countries. So it means that we need cooperation with them. They should uh, present to us uh, their agenda, their plan. So, I mean, to also to, to uh, present to us you know, some projects so we, we understand and then we can have cooperation. For example, as I mentioned, the Egyptian case. So it's Egyptian uh, government to design this Suez Canal uh, industrial zone. And they, you know, present to China what kind of, you know, I mean, uh, uh, investment they need. So we respond to that to see whether we can do it or not. 
So I don't think, you know, I mean, this kind of economic cooperation is something uh, any country can impose to the others. I think it's all a question of narrative. I mean, um, the narrative you're presenting is, 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 is very enticing, and, and, um, but I can tell you that there are people, influential people in different countries who see, see this differently. Uh, but it will also take initiatives from those recipient countries as well. I mean, you can come forward and say, in this specific infrastructure project, we could use some Chinese investment, but we would also like to have another international partner in the project. And that would actually test China in, in that situation. Because if it's about partnerships, it's okay to bring another partner into the, into the, into the game. So uh, passivity by these countries, recipient countries, will lead to the situation, as you said, as that could be described as a trap. But if there is some proactivity, they could actually turn that opportunity into something that they need themselves. And I, I agree that we can, if you focus on suitable technology, there are definitely a lot of opportunities. Very well. If there are no more questions, then I think we can uh, close the conversation on a rather hopeful note. Thank you very much for your participation and attention. Have a good evening. Find us on www.ui.sc. We are also on Facebook and on Twitter with UI Sweden. And we're also on YouTube where you can watch our seminars and interviews.